All right, Max. So this is how we're going to start the episode. Oh, wow. All right. Cheers. Cheers. This is a very relaxed recording session. It's a uh, it's hot out tonight and because the microphone that we use is a decent microphone, it can pick up all of the crickets chirping outside. And so Mac and I are sweltering in here putting our bodies on the line to bring you premium audio. So I I hope everyone is happy <laughs> about that. <laughs> everybody i'm your host griffin reed and this is dr doctor your bi-weekly debrief with your best friends in medicine today i have a very special very brainy uh friend of the show and expert on brains uh max stanford and one of my best friends in residency so i'm very very happy that he could join us um mac do you want to say hello yeah i'm honored to be part of your podcast I, I <laughs> thank was, you I, I don't know how it took till episode six i know I, th- I think it's a fairly respectable uh that is a tragedy that yeah. it took this long to get you on the podcast i mean Maddie was episode two now. but yeah <laughs> so mac how are you related to maddie so she is my fiance. Yeah. And she is med peed to f- for the loyal following for the show. You <laughs> probably saw the second episode. Did you listen to the second episode? I did. Wow. Oh, Not great. Completely. Every time I've tried to listen to it, things have gone terrible at work. So oh, really? I've now associated your podcast with bad luck. <laughs> so it probably is. All it things induces do. strokes throughout Rhode Island. <laughs> <laughs> so what bad things have happened when you been trying to listen to the podcast just the page are non-stop <laughs> and then uh, you circle back the next day and still <laughs> the whole episode um all right so for those who don't know mac is a neurology resident at rhode island hospital and he's the same year that i am so we initially started off as interns together and um, as part of the neurology training, you do what's called a transition year. Is that what they call it here, or is it a prelim year? Prelim year for if you're like doing a dedicated in like medicine, they oh, do okay. have those transition years too that some people do for like where you basically do rotations through all the specialties. But I think that's less common now. So okay, so the difference between a prelim year and a transition year, prelim, you basically just focus on one specialty, and then transition year, it's it, what is that? It, explain it to me because I actually don't even understand. You know, I didn't really do too much uh, digging into it because it was uh, pretty much that you should go and do a prelim if you're going into neurology. But from my understanding, it's essentially very similar to a third year of medical school in intern form where you basically go rotate through all the subspecialties as an intern. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I'm even learning something new on this podcast. Basically, but... Uh, Transition years and prelim years, um, well, I guess prelim years especially, um, are what we see at Brown for a number of different specialties. So <coughs> specialties that do prelim years in medicine are uh, anesthesia, 
neurology, ophthalmology, dermatology. And then I think does IR. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And interventional radiology as well. Does radiology also, or is it just interventional radiology? I think stereotypically, like, overall, I think radiologists like doing the transition year because they can kind of, I mean, they get to see all the things that they're looking at inside the body anyway. Oh, okay. And I've heard it's, like, somewhat easier, kind of, (laughs) too. The truth comes out. (laughs) See, but this says something about Mac, that he chose to do a prelim year and not a transition year. He is a hard worker. not entirely sure it wasn't mandatory, but I'll take the compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, like I said, Mac and I, we worked together on a few rotations um, as uh, Mac was uh, getting ready um, doing his internal medicine year and so that's how we that's how we initially first met and one of the things that I remember about Mac is that he was one of the first people to get there in the morning when I was on my night flight rotation uh, he would come in for sign out at like 5 50 a.m and really you weren't even supposed to come in for sign out until six that's like that's what the that was the early side so Mac is a very hard worker but tell us a little bit about your prelim year was that a pleasant experience yeah, I loved it. It was great. I really like all the medicine people here. So it was nice just to get to know them better, especially now this far into neurology. Yeah. It's really helpful to be able to just text and ask you a question. I know I've called you a few times on a yeah. couple people just to kind of run something by you. And um, the program itself was great. I mean, uh, it's a lot of work, a lot of inpatient medicine, but uh, I think it gave me a pretty good foundation, which I've coasted off of and slowly forgotten over time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely brings the um, the programs closer together because we become friends with all the neurology residents um, as they do their prelim year. And then I think they sort of become friends with us. So the programs become somewhat intertwined. And I've definitely asked you questions, vice versa. So it's a great, it's a great, it's a very great professional relationship. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, What I remember about the prelim year from sort of an external point of view (laughs) is that they work you guys hard. They work you really hard. So usually during like an intern year for medicine, people do like one month of inpatient wards, maybe two in a row, and then you get like a really easy elective to sort of catch your breath. What was your schedule like your intern year, Mac? You do a lot. It's like basically all wards. Yeah. I think there were three electives, um, which were all kind of nice and uh, a good break. I think three electives, the ICU for one month, and then I think all wards the rest of it. So another eight months of wards. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's brutal. So, I mean, you were typ- like, you were probably pretty routinely doing two to three ward months in a row. Like in gen- in general, you're probably doing three in a row. At a, like I think in so. I started on elective. So I, I was probably oh. pretty straight through. Oh, no. Yeah. I just remember a long COVID winter and then uh, the spring. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, yeah. Be thankful to your local neurologist because they had it really bad for one year at least. (laughs) Um, So I think one of the first things that I want to talk about is how many years is a neurology residency beyond like the first, you know, prelim year? And then what do each of the years look like? Gotcha. So every program is a little bit different. Ours is great. 
in that we have an X plus Y program, which I don't know if any other neural programs actually have that yet. Talk about what X plus Y is because we haven't talked about on the on the show yet. Okay. Yeah. So um, on the medicine side, like when we do our preliminary, they basically, the rotation switch every month that you'll be on one rotation on one floor for one month. And then after that month, everyone will switch places and then everyone will have a new job and a new role. Um, X plus Y is essentially the similar uh, setup, except there's a certain amount of designated weeks that are just considered your X weeks, which are more... Uh, difficult or uh, more involved and more patient inpatient heavy, um, which would probably be pretty similar or analogous to like the inpatient wards on medicine or inpatient neurology services. And then the Y weeks are more broken up either elective time or like dedicated clinic time. So for us, we are on what's called a four plus two schedule on neurology, where we have four weeks of more intensive work and then two weeks where we have more dedicated clinic time and more dedicated elective time. So you are never really on any one thing more than two weeks and then any more than one difficult thing for like a total of four weeks. And then you get a nice break. Yeah, that's really nice. And I think the other good thing is that you can very easily plan out when your breaks are going to be because Mm -hmm. you have those two weeks of like lighter duties. And I think usually you have um, golden, like quote unquote, golden weekends each of those weekends, which for those not in the know, a golden weekend is just a normal weekend for 95% of America. (laughs) (laughs) You just, you have both Saturday and Sunday off, which in medicine is a special thing. (laughs) And then um, like a great weekend is when you work one day on and then the other day you have off and then a black weekend is really a terrible, terrible thing in the bane of my existence. And what I did this last weekend. It's actually just not even a weekend. It's not a it's weekend. It's just continued work. Yeah, it's continued work. <laughs> so when you have a black weekend, you work 12 days in a row because you work five weekdays, two weekend days, and then five more weekdays before you have a, a day off. So it <laughs> sucks. <laughs> um, okay, so that's that's one of the things that's interesting about your so that's unique for the Brown Neurology Program. As far as I could tell, I mean, uh, I know X plus Y was kind of spreading through medicine programs mm-hmm. pretty significantly over the last few years. Uh, but in terms of neuro, I think this was the only program that I saw that they were really starting to do like this dedicated X plus Y system, which is great. I really like it. Um, but what was our initial questioning? Oh, yeah. So what to- are the <laughs> other year? What do like years one and two and three of your neurology gotcha. residency look like? Okay. So after you finish your prelim year um, at our program, we basically have a more front loaded schedule where the second year neurology residents essentially um, run all of the inpatient services, which is, include the uh, general neurology service, the vascular neurology service, and the neurocritical care unit. Um, so it's pretty busy, especially on the X plus Y, because there's only four of our six residents on any given like inpatient uh, schedule at any given time. And there's three services to cover, plus uh, consults, which you kind of start to rotate in and out of second year. And then third year is basically consults, consults, consults. You don't really do any more inpatient work and you're not really doing any more um, like general neurology team or vascular neurology team. You're basically seeing all the new consults, doing all the new admissions and kind of staffing things um, and then doing night coverage as well. And then fourth year, you don't really uh, take on any dedicated clinical duties. It's really kind of a cheap year where you kind of 
hold the role of like staffing. So instead of actually seeing patients yourself, you're sending other people and then they are staffing with you and you're kind of helping organize the plan for the patients if they need to get admitted, if they need to be someone that needs to get escalated for a like, more involved discussion um, and kind of just what happens next. So you slowly kind of gain more responsibility and less work. You're the expert advisor, no. expert advisor. <laughs> um, so the only, I've only rotated on, so as medicine residents, we do rotate on the neurology service for one month. Mm-hmm. It's not very much, <laughs> but uh, I've Someone rotated. Someone argue in medicine, it's too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people like to complain about their neurology yeah, months, but I had a great time. Oh, okay. um, I worked with my, one of my favorite nicknames for a resident, Maheen. What's, what's Maheen's last name? Uh, Raina. Maheen Reina, but they call her Maheen the Machine. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've kind of taken up our own like uh, nickname between the two of us as Eminem. Oh. So we are uh, notoriously somewhat black clouds. <laughs> we come together, it's just like one big morbidity mortality. So. <laughs> um, so I've rotated on general neurology and vascular, which we actually just call stroke. And then I guess consults too, as the lowest fish on the totem pole general is just kind of like being on a medicine rotation except you see like neurospecific things so people who are having seizures that won't stop um or they had a seizure and you don't really know why um people who have unexplained like what we call focal weaknesses or not so somebody like if a 80 or 90 year old person like stops eating they get like generalized weakness that affects the whole body but if you have like a young 30 year old person who suddenly their like right arm is weak and you don't know why and it's not a stroke, then they might end up on the general neurology service. <laughs> exactly. Um, and what other sorts of things do you treat on general neurology? It's been a while since I did mine. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of the catch all for, you know, seizures and uh, generalized like known epilepsy patients. You'll have a lot of uh, primary brain tumors that either need adjustments of their steroids and then there's uh, typically usually one or two very kind of more interesting, uh, mysterious cases that I think kind of, uh, uh, I think, more define like the service. Because most of the other things could probably in other hospitals be managed on a medicine floor. And I don't think that the care would be all that different. But some of the more involved cases kind of are more rare. And being at a tertiary care center, even though there are rare things, it's, this is where they would come. So what are some of the can you think of any of the zebras, you know, some of those rare diagnoses that you might see on general neurology? Yeah, I mean, uh, we typically see some a couple of cases of CJD a year, just given uh, Rhode Island has a nice rounded 1 million population, which <laughs> gives you a couple of cases every year. CJD being Kreutzfeldt-Jakob's uh, exactly. disease. Um, and, you know, there's uh, always like maybe some autoimmune disease going on. You can see like some CNF lymphomas, um, which are all very interesting. But there's also um, a lot that we see that's not necessarily rare, but very unique presentations of things that are common, which I think are more interesting. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's an example of that? I think all of the people that are getting worked up for very nonspecific symptoms that are been suspicious for either like some form of conversion or a non-epileptic event um and then when we actually find out that there was something going on i always think that's just the most amazing like wow 
I can't believe that this is actually something going on with their brain. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good point. So I'm going to stop and define some terminology here. So Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease is prion disease, which is basically when it's like mad cow disease, but in humans. Exactly. Also, like in deer, there's chronic wasting disease. That's a similar disease similar thing. So it's basically like these misfolded proteins in your brain that then start to multiply basically. And it's can be really sad and um, devastating illness because it's not really treatable and it rapidly progresses to basically death all the time. Um, So there's that epilepsy is like seizures that won't stop. So when we talk about um, uh, uh, like seizures and epileptic or non-epileptic activity, it's like seizures or not seizures. Um, And then Oh, yeah. Conversion disorder. So conversion disorder is basically, um, how would you describe conversion disorder? It's kind of a nebulous concept a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I was using it more as like just an umbrella term for someone who has having symptoms that uh, may not be directly related to uh, the underlying cause may not be directly related to the symptoms they're having and there could be what we call like a mind body disconnect that even though what the patient's experiencing is real and out of their control such as their weakness it may not have any direct physical objective evidence of what could be driving it so like an example of that would be uh like a 30 year old uh guy comes into the hospital and his right like he can't move his right leg and it's very very distressing to him he'll probably show up in the emergency department and they'll probably do a code stroke so like run him through the scanner to um, make sure that he's not having like an acute stroke even though that'd be super rare and like a, in a younger person um in general i know mm-hmm. you guys probably see that some some with some frequency um <laughs> but uh um, and then there's no stroke that we can see on the scanner. After a little bit of additional workup, he may get an MRI um, to look to see if there's any like more fine um, uh, imaging findings of disease or like inflammation in the brain or spine and maybe a lumbar puncture to uh, look to make sure that the fluid around the brain, we'll talk about a lumbar punctures a little <laughs> bit later, but basically the thousand dollar, I should say million dollar, like neuro workup. And then everything comes back normal. And we have to say, uh, well, we can't really find a problem. And usually the answer is what Mac was talking about conversion disorder. But then the other thing that Mac was mentioning is it can be very satisfying. If then you like find a zebra and you actually are able to, you know, diagnose and potentially treat this person. So I agree with you. Those cases are incredible because not only is it really satisfying to the team, but also the patient who has maybe felt like they're a little bit crazy, even though we would like, we definitely don't feel that way as a medical team, but they, they may feel like they're, you know, I have real symptoms that we just like aren't getting the right diagnosis. And then you find that diagnosis. That's so satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's cool. Uh vascular what's that like not as cool yeah that's really a lot of, <laughs> i should say stroke or vascular rotation oh my god that's a lot of work yeah um a lot of people having strokes in rhode island yeah um it's um a lot of redundancy in terms of what you do in terms of the workup for a stroke and the management for a stroke unfortunately 
by definition, most of the damage has been done by the time that mm. you're seeing them. So it's more of just kind of preventing anything in the future and kind of getting them set up for whatever best chance they have at rehabilitation. So I think that's the general goal of the stroke service is to quickly admit a patient, figure out why they likely had a stroke, put them on the medications that could best incre- decrease their chance of having a future stroke, and then expedite their uh, time to rehab so that they can regain any function that they could have potentially lost from the stroke. So it's a quick turnover um, by design, essentially, because you want the fastest turnover possible to get like the best outcomes for these patients. Um but it also increases the workload on mm-hmm. the residents. You're churning through a ton of patients, and it's especially hard on the residents because we're the note jockeys, basically, and responsible for like cranking out all the paperwork associated with their stays. So it's most demanding on us, and like the more cerebral parts of the team, like the attendings and the fellows, they aren't using their brains that hard because it's very algorithmic. Like you just go down a pathway, basically, and then say is what we're going to do. It's the same. That's a very similar for most patients, um, both in the di- like diagnostic workup and treatment. Um, so it, uh, after a while, I, I, I think it, um, you, people who are good at it don't have to use like a lot of their brain power to do it. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. It's easy to turn through a lot of patients when you're just thinking about them, but it's not easy to turn through all the paperwork, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So in the general public, we're told that it's like really important if you're having symptoms of a stroke to get to the hospital. Why Why is that, Mac? Like, what are some of the things that, you know, potentially could reverse a stroke? Yeah. Even though, definitely. you know, a lot of people, you know, unfortunately get there a little bit too late. But if you get there fast enough, why is that important to get there fast? Exactly. Because I guess the bottom line is time is brain. And a stroke is essentially just a heart attack for the brain, and you're actively not getting blood to cells that need it on a second-by-second basis to stay alive. So any second or minute that you delay could potentially cause irreversible damage to your brain. So time itself is very important, but also becomes, which I think you were more alluding to, is possible uh, interventions for the stroke to try to abort um, damage that is currently in the trajectory to being done but has not yet happened um which would be tpa um so if within four and a half hours of coming to the hospital and you don't have any absolute contraindications to the medication and it seems that you have a syndrome that seems consistent with uh, acute stroke you could potentially be eligible for this medication that comes with pretty significant risks but has um really outstanding outcomes sometimes and profound impacts on people this is the the clot buster the clot buster yes yes yes. i I gave two people today alone the clot buster (laughs) which i think probably that must be a big part about like maturing as a neurology resident i'm i gotta imagine the first time that you give somebody tpa that's gotta be nerve-wracking i can tell you the two today were just as nerve-wracking as the first time (laughs) why was that they're all different situations. They're all unique. You're always trying to do the absolute best by the person and to like go through all these things that could potentially. And the risks aren't low. Um, and a lot of times it's a difficult thing to discuss in five minutes. Um, all the physiology of the brain, convince this person why I think they're having a stroke, explain these risks to them, and then get them to kind of trust me enough that they need to make a decision on this. So time is just an incredible, like, 
resource laundering these situations and why and why do you have to think so hard about giving tpa why don't we just give it to everybody who we think might be having a stroke yeah so you can have um, the big risk with tpa because it can bust up clots it also puts you at a much higher risk for bleeding and the thing that everyone for good reason is very afraid of with tpa is that it does increase your risk especially if you have an acute stroke of life-threatening bleeding um and up to if it's a true stroke, uh, up to 5% in cases. Wow. So one in 20. Yeah. And I gave it to two people today. Ooh, so two in yeah. 20. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, those numbers are uh, a little bit skewed. 5% is, um, on like the national end. And I've heard that like a tertiary care center where everyone's a, when a tertiary care center where everyone's like more appropriately triaged and we really do our due diligence to make sure that it's been under the four and a half hours that they don't have any accelerated risk factors and we have like true conversations it's lower at our own institution and then um the risk overall which i don't know the exact number of is decreased if it is not actually a stroke as well so your risk isn't significantly elevated at that point so there are some asterisks to it but it's still a very uh scary thing for someone who was going about their usual day 30 minutes prior to this and they're now being told they have a stroke and they might have to take a medication that would either kill them or potentially keep them from ever being able to walk again totally yeah and with that um four and a half hour like at like absolute cutoff of time um i feel like one of the really sad things that can happen is if you have somebody who wakes up in the morning with like a new symptom that is probably related to a stroke Mm -hmm. because you don't know if that stroke started five minutes before they woke up or five minutes after they went to bed so it could have been like eight hours ago or five minutes ago and when when somebody has that happen we never we never give them tpa because well, you don't. Ast- asterisk. Oh, asterisk. Oh, my God. Me in. This is great. So, okay. uh, I, I, I didn't know if this was a plant that you were leading into this intentionally. Um, but, yeah, there has been uh, new evidence in the uh, appropriately named wake-up trial um, that shows that there is some benefit to potentially getting a rapid MRI. And by doing um, some math magic with the images comparing the flare to some of the DWI images, you can get a rough idea of how old the stroke is. It's still very conservatively being rolled out so i don't think that it's by any means reflective of the four and a half hour window and you really probably had to have your symptoms immediately when you woke up to get to the hospital get evaluated get in an mri scanner and get this uh get all the qualifications to be able to be a candidate yeah. for it um but it's something that they've rolled out at rhode island hospital now as a generalized protocol wow. so i think that they're in the double digits of people who wow. have gotten tpa from it now oh my gosh yeah that's awesome. And the interesting part about that is it uses an MRI scan of the brain, which MRIs are kind of slow tests to be done, right? Like how much, how long does the MRI of the brain take? So it's the particular sequence they do here is a perfusion image, which can be done fairly quickly. I'd say on the order of probably 20 minutes that they could get the DWI flare and the perfusion imaging. So, uh, it kind of has to line up that the scanner is open, that there's no one there. But the current protocol says that they kind of take priority for the next person on the scanner. It's not like they rip someone off the table, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I would be so mad if I was a patient that got, I'm like three quarters of the way through my study. You got to get off of there. We're going to stroke going. <laughs> so not to get too in the weeds, but there are protocols where people are ripped off. Oh, the table. wow. So if someone is a candidate for thrombectomy yeah. and they were directly transferred for that, and that the IR team essentially has said, if they are a candidate based on this scan, we are taking them in for an interventional procedure to take this clot out. Then it's like they get the scanner. And this, like... this is fascinating. I'm learning so much. I learned so much every time I talked to Mac, but especially tonight. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow, this is super interesting. Okay. The last thing that I wanted to talk about with regards to neurology things is the lumbar puncture, the spinal tap. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, heard you had very successful ones yourself personally recently. That's the reason that I wanted to talk about it, Mac. <laughs> um, so the lumbar puncture is a procedure that internists as well as neurologists um, can do in the hospital. Is there anyone else who does lumbar punctures? I feel like we're the big ones. Um, emergency department. but Yeah, the, the emergency department, I guess. I mean, pretty much anyone. Anyone yeah. can do it, but they don't <laughs> routinely do it. Yeah. And I've had the good fortune of doing a couple of these recently and having them go well. If they went not well, I probably would not want to talk about them. <laughs> um, so basically what a lumbar puncture is, is one of the diagnostic text tests that we were kind of alluding to earlier, um, which is a way to sample the fluid that bathes the spinal cord and the brain. Um which that fluid is special fluid in the body. It's not like all that other fluid. Exactly. All that common plebe fluid. <laughs> this is special high class fluid. Yeah. Um, it is immunologically privileged, sort of. And then sort basically, uh, it it is inside what's called the blood brain barrier. And um, can you describe that a little bit, Mac? What's the blood brain barrier? I guess it, uh, it basically, as you were saying, kind of acts as a barrier and creates this gradient for the special type of fluid that circulates around the brain and the spinal cord that doesn't necessarily have the red blood cells, white blood cells, things like that that we have in our usual like, serum or blood um, and has is more uh, just kind of a general like nutrient like production like, in the brain that I don't really know if I'm doing justice describing this yeah. here. I think part of the reason that the blood brain barrier exists is because the brain is the brain and spinal cord are like such important um, organs for the body to survive that basically your body created a system to keep out everything that could be bad. Like, you know, if you get a bloodstream infection, uh, the blood brain barrier is pretty good at keeping that like infection out of the brain in general and that's kind of the reason that it's there is to like try to keep um bacteria toxins like other uh pathogens out of the brain um and in doing so um kind of creates this special fluid that sometimes it's helpful diagnostically to tap into and see what's going on in there um, because if things aren't as they should be in terms of all the cell counts and whatnot um, we can sort of get a sense of what might be going on. Yeah. So um, basically, what this, the way that this procedure is done is the safest place to access that fluid is down in the lumbar spine, mm -hmm. so the low back. Um, and specifically, 
um, we aim to go and kind of even the lower part of the low, low back. Um, if you feel, if you like put your hands on your hips, like you're upset at your young child, um, <laughs> then if you put your, um, hands and if you put your thumbs on, like meet them in the middle, that's about the, um, the area that we tried to tap into more or less. Um, so we basically have the patient like bend over forward, uh, it, in order to open up the space in between those, um, vertebrae in their, in their spine to create as much space as possible. And then, um, inject some local, uh, anesthetic like lidocaine, and then try to slide a needle up in there, uh, to, uh, sample the fluid. Um, couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the reasons that we would want to get a sample of that fluid, Mac? Oh, so many reasons. So many reasons. Um, <laughs> I think, um, I, I mean, I think learning it in med school was fairly intimidating. And now in practice, I think that the, uh, real money thing with the CSF fluid is the last tube cell count. Do they have white blood cells? Cause if they don't, you've crossed off a lot of things on your list. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, if someone has a bacterial infection, viral infection, or autoimmune process, it would be suspicious if there's absolutely no white blood cells in there. And probably for a lot of the patients, you yeah. you get this assessor and no white blood cells, and wow, you can really wipe out you've a lot of the wiped out a lot of what you're thinking of. Um, not completely, but a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's kind of the big reason a lot of people get a lumbar puncture is kind of for that. And then there's a lot of kind of supplemental data that you get from it, which I think is more taught and more harped on in medical school, like your blood glucose and, oh, if it's bacterial, this will drive down your blood glucose. And your The reason being because the bacteria will consume the glucose, kind of like yeast eating glucose and bread to make good bread. Exactly. It's a nice learning point, and it's probably good for medical school education, but I don't know necessarily if it's the, like, the most critical piece of information you get. Um, it all has to be taken together, but uh, a couple other things that it's used for in practice is uh, things like Guillain-Barre syndrome to see if there's a protein dissociation. Um, and then in general... That's like if people have weakness that's ascending from their fingers and toes, like up their extremities. Exactly. Um, and, then, and often <laughs> something that people like to say is like caused by vaccines or like viral illnesses. <laughs> That's one of the big, like a lot of the anti-vaxxers will say, Oh, I'm going to get Guillain-Barre from this vaccine. <laughs> I can't take it. It's extremely, exceedingly rare to get Guillain-Barre from a vaccine, almost like vanishingly rare. And even more rare that you'd have very severe, yeah. um, not like self-limiting symptoms, I'd say. Um, but that's like a couple of the major reasons. So you can send off all kinds of specialty tests um, for things that are more uh, not run of the mill. Um, and you can also check for uh, just the actual pressure within that compartment as well, um, which has to be done when the patient's laying down to get accurate pressure. Um, but that can sometimes be a useful information. You probably already have pretty good suspicion at that point if you've moved to a lumbar puncture if they have elevated intracranial pressure from the imaging or potentially like a fundoscopic exam. But it's always nice to kind of confirm what you were thinking was right. Yeah, fundoscopic exam being like looking in the back of the eye to see if the optic disc, it's like a part of the eye is kind of swollen, which is also like uh, int uh, the brain fluid can like press on that disc, sort of like transmit pressure to it and make it look bigger if the intracranial pressure is is big so that's a way to kind of assess intracranial pressure without actually getting into the to the spinal fluid and confirming it or it's an in, it's like an early indicator kind of 
Um, some of the specialty tests that can be run would be like special gene testing for like syphilis or um, other like PCR. Can go on and on yeah, and on. Lots I mean, of, you yeah. can look for neurosyphilis. You can, circling back to our other points, look for prion disease in the CSF as well. So there is any number of things that uh, you could really check for. And at that point, it's getting very much more involved. And you're probably on the gen neuro service at that yeah, point. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, which kind of, uh, uh, I guess brings me to the last point about lumbar puncture, which I think there's some pretty fun terminology associated with lumbar punctures. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to explain this. Oh. If you ask any person in medicine about these terms, they will almost certainly be able to answer them for you. So, uh, Hopefully Mac, I know the terms. Yeah. <laughs> Mac, what does, uh, pop, pop, and then you stop mean? <laughs> uh, you mean like kind of, uh, as you're that, kind of popping sensation you get as you enter the compartment yeah so it's basically something that they teach you when you're doing uh when they're when you're learning to do lumbar punctures as like an intern or like brand new medical trainee um they tell you when you're doing it okay when you're sliding in the needle pop pop and then you stop (laughs) um so that's just telling you when you've gotten through like what the the like dura modder compartments to get into uh to the right space yeah exactly Um, and then Mac, what is a what is a champagne tap? So I, I feel like this is uh, pointed because <laughs> you're going to tell me that you have your own champagne tap that you've recently done, or have I had two, Mac? Have you had two? Okay, <laughs> that's very impressive. Um, so a champagne tap because it is a, a difficult procedure. People are usually kind of uh, very excited when they get through it and are able to get a sample of CSF that has zero red blood cells in it, meaning that you did um, like perfect entry, perfect, smooth, didn't hit any blood vessels, didn't contaminate the sample at all. Um, and it sounds like Griffin did that twice. Twice. Recently? Twice. Okay. Made it easier by the fact that I had two young patients that I was doing it on. The absolute worst possible patient to do this on, not, not because it's bad to work with these patients, but just because it's so difficult to get into the right space the elderly with like degenerative uh, joint joint disease or disc disease in their back so it can just be like so hard with a lot of the bony like wear and tear arthritis there to get into the right spot and a lot of the times if we're not able to do it just at the bedside we'll have to kind of punt the procedure to interventional radiology so that they can do it under like x-ray guidance basically mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> if we know that somebody's gonna be like a really tough stick then we'll give it in. Yeah, no, 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 definitely do not call me. Um, yeah, we'll we'll give it a shot, but we won't torture them, and then we'll send them to get it done under X-ray guidance. But all right, Mac. Well, my beer is empty, so I think we better go to the break. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the other side. So, Mac, during my lumbar puncture, <laughs> we're back again. I, I didn't know we were going to continue on with the lumbar I can't puncture. Get a, I can't get enough of this. During the lumbar puncture that I was doing, uh, I like to keep the TV on to help distract the patient. 
Just because it's it's nice to imagine yourself being anywhere else but having a needle stuck in your bag. <laughs> the place that this gentleman chose to imagine himself being, per se, by having this channel on the TV, was a reality show hmm. called Naked and Afraid. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, was he already watching it when you came in, or did he see you and was like, I want to watch Naked and Afraid while I do this on my Procture? He was already watching it when we came in. It was a very good episode, too, because the people were in Russia, which I was trying to ask him, how did these people get clearance to go to Russia in today's you know political climate? So that's pretty good. Uh, I'm always fascinated by what shows patients are watching when you come in. Um, my favorite particular story was there was a patient when I was in med school that was hospitalized for alcohol withdrawal and was watching. Um, I can't even know the name of the show. The one that's like Moonshiners. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh I was my like, God. this doesn't seem that it's really helping him. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. that's too good. Um, <laughs> no. And I feel like it's almost like a diagnostic sign when you walk into a room and there's like an elderly patient watching like PBS kids like they are clearly not oriented to what's going on in their situation so um but mac i happen to know that you have a particular affinity for reality tv shows is this true it's true confirm for a national audience it's true <laughs> mac stanford reality tv fan <laughs> so what are the what are the best reality shows on right now well i think the best show ever period is survivor still oh. Um, and I challenge anyone to prove me wrong. Considering it's like forty something a season. Well, forty. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's still hosted by Jeff Probst. Hasn't aged a day. Wow. <laughs> um, but I, I think the show itself is probably like the most interesting I've ever really seen. Uh, that being said, I do watch mostly trash reality TV, <laughs> so I did lead with that one, so I had some respect <laughs> in the situation. What's the biggest trash that you watch? The most trash reality yeah. TV show I've ever seen would be Temptation Island. <laughs> Explain the premise. Oh, I, I don't know if I can. Is it not radio appropriate? <laughs> it's radio appropriate. It's just terrible. <laughs> it's purposefully designed to be the worst of humanity. Oh, my God. Uh, it's these couples uh, that have been together and have some issues in their relationship that they've decided the best way to deal with it is going on this show called temptation island where they are separated from their spouse and taken to two separate mansions for a, like a month or so where they are uh living with this like population of the opposite sex that are like extraordinarily attractive who are essentially there for the sole purpose of swaying them away from their significant other um, and the whole time there's a film crew filming trying to cut very like uh, very particular incriminating pieces of evidence to show their significant other to make them feel terrible and encourage them to subsequently cheat and catch more to show the other one. Oh my so god it's probably the worst <laughs> thing that anyone could ever have come up with <laughs> And I'm sure they got a promotion for it. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so what percentage of people succumb to temptation on the temptation island? <laughs> I would say most. Oh, um, man. It's shocking how some of them resolve it at the end. Um, but I, Their I relationship really, bounces back from I, the... I haven't actually... I'm not involved enough in this show to probably have kept stats. But <laughs> it would be interesting to look up online. <laughs> okay. That is interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I just had to touch upon that because what a perfect overlap of uh, <laughs> procedure in my in my guest on this show. Um, so with that being said, we are so happy to have this next segment, which is listener questions. Oh, boy. And who better to have submitted the first question than my very loving, 
kind, thoughtful sister, Aubrey Glover. Thank you, Aubrey, for submitting this question. And we have some more questions that are submitted and awaiting our future episodes. So this will certainly be now a recurring segment. If you have questions that you want us to answer related to the social culture of being in the hospital or just any any questions, guests that you want us to have on, um, you can email those to docdocpod at gmail.com, D-O-C-D-O-C-P-O-D at gmail.com, and we'll um, be sure to get to those. We'll read every single one of them. Um, so this question from Aubrey is... As an EMR analyst, electronic medical record analyst for a hospital, she's interested to hear about any thoughts or feelings that we have about electronic medical records. For example, do we have a favorite between Cerner, Epic, and Meditech? Would you prefer paper charts rather than a computer one? Um, And then older staff versus younger staff using the electronic medical record, what are the sort of characteristics of that? And um, what's it like to train on new features? Because Aubrey knows that every three months there can be big updates to the medical record, um, electronic medical, medical records. So, Mac, I feel like we've really hit upon a really hot topic oh, yeah. issue here. It generates a lot of heat and passion in medicine. Um, so I'll give you I happen to know, Mac, because I have to ask you before the show, you have experience working on multi- multiple uh, medical records. Yeah, Both unfortunately. Cerner and, yeah, unfortunately, I agree. <laughs> and Cerner and Epic, correct? And uh, what, what's the VA? Oh, yeah. CPRS. CPRS we talked yeah. about that one already. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, why is it unfortunate? Why do you say that's unfortunately you've worked with multiple and then what do you have a favor between them? What's that like between Cerner and Epic? Yeah, so I guess I really only used Cerner in medical school. So I don't know if I uh, was using it as uh, much as I am now, you know, in the role of a resident. Uh, but I can say that Epic seems to be uh, way more user friendly compared to how Cerner was. And I, I think in uh, our, our own institution that a lot of uh, the program was also catered around kind of some of the uh, amount of time it takes to write a note on some of the other EMRs um, pretty significantly. So it, it affected not only like care sometimes, but like in terms of like how the day was structured just to accommodate the limitations of some of the uh, what you document on a computer, which I thought was the most interesting. So I think that if I recall correctly, I believe that Epic and Cerner are the two biggest medical records in terms of like, um, like popularity uh, throughout the U.S. Meditech may be another big one that I don't know about as much. That might be a more outpatient centric one or for smaller medical systems. Um, But I have had a little bit of exposure to Cerner as well. Um, as well as something called like all chart or yeah. all scripts. Or I, I guess I also have been on eClinical Works because yeah. I use that from the clinic. Yeah, yeah, but, that's right. So, um, why do you say what's like? I think one of the main features of Epic that's so nice is dot phrases, which I'm not really sure if other medical records have templates that you can insert. Basically, the big the big thing about Epic that's so nice is that. You can put in um, these uh, uh, templates that you can just insert. Basically, um, to give you an example, every time that I admit somebody with heart failure, I type in .gr heart failure, and it pulls up my entire uh, plan for how to treat heart failure. 
So it says like this patient has heart failure and then it has like parentheses reduced or preserved ejection fraction. And then I like pick one of those. It says their last ejection fraction was XXX. And then I just type in 45%. And then the plan for this admission will be like XXX. And I say diuresis with like diuretics and until they're dry. <laughs> so basically it just makes charting a lot quicker. Uh, Cerner may have a function like that. Uh, I don't know, Mac, does it? I can't remember off the top of my head, really. But it's maybe um, just not it quite, and maybe it's just not quite accessible and as user-friendly yeah. as Epics, because really to type in dot and that, like a period and then a few letters, so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, in general, the consensus amongst most people that I've worked with, with is that working on Epic is just like leaps and bounds kind of bad. Well, I don't know. I shouldn't say leap it, leaps and bounds, but it's like, a, in general, a much more user-friendly experience than the uh, like any other medical record. I think, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I think they were also probably the first ones that incorporated Secure Chat or some system like that, um, which I think caught a lot of people's eyes as a much better system than the pagers. What um, is Secure Chat? So it's uh, essentially uh, instant messaging service uh, specifically for the EMR where you can tag patients, add people who are kind of the responding providers or anyone on the care team and uh, just like have a very direct line to anyone that you need to be in contact with. Where can you see your secure chats at? Everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. So you can see it on your phone. Um, And we should say... You can see it on your phone, but you have to use a biometric login. It's mandated for the for the app that you can see these like instant messages on. You have to have either face recognition from Apple or like a fingerprint recognition for Android devices. Um, so it is very secure, I would say. It you can't fake somebody's face or fingerprint. Yeah, it's unless also... <laughs> you kill them <laughs> or you're their identical twin. <laughs> yeah. There's also like a lot of group chat features, which yeah. um, can come in handy, especially for uh, like triaging to the ICU just in like a massive group setting. Or if there's someone that you need to like massively activate someone like the thrombectomy team, oh, yeah. you can instantly kind of alert like 90 people yeah. of like yeah. who need to come in and like set up this room and what procedures they need and what the transfer is and all that. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think those are two big pluses. The downside of Epic is that it is really expensive from what I understand. That does seem to be the major barrier for a lot of people. (laughs) I want to say that I heard like somewhere up in Maine, I think maybe like the Maine Med uh, like system bought Epic and it may have been, man, it's at minimum multi-million dollars. Okay, so I just looked it up. Maine Health spent over $150 150 million dollars on epic electronic medical record systems so that's a lot of money i think so i don't i really don't know for us yeah I, I guess that is actually true it's hard to say everything in healthcare is so expensive but 150 million dollars that's a lot it does seem like a big number yeah <laughs> um so i would say that's uh that seems to be one thing now if we get into some of the other details of aubrey's questions which is, would we rather have a paper chart rather than a computer one? Okay, Mac, I want to count to three, and then you say paper or e-chart on three. Okay, one, two, three, e-chart. e-chart. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Paper would be such a pain in the butt because 
now when you have patients who are getting transferred from hospital to hospital, like you can see all their medications, like not written in terrible handwriting, but typed up. Other other hand, like it would be so you could document so quickly because you could just scribble out anything and then be like, bam, like <laughs> that says my entire plan. And people would be like, that's completely illegible. Like I can't read there. any of that. <laughs> and you say it's all there. Diaries, 40 milligrams Lasix. <laughs> if that doesn't work, that's not what it says. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it is it is convenient for the portability of like health healthcare records and making sure that people can actually hold you accountable for <laughs> what you do. Um, although many people who want like to gripe about it say medical records are all just about billing. It's just all they're needed for is billing. We don't really need them to take care of patients. I would say that's maybe like sixty percent true, but the other forty percent yeah. is kind of important for patients. I, I would also say that with the massive amount of information in like modern healthcare having not an emr would be impossible because simple tasks such as searching the word seizure in someone's (laughs) chart would be like a 10 person team working all week looking through like 20 file cabinets to figure out what was going on with them it'd take literally five seconds yeah (laughs) yeah exactly like if you yeah so if somebody comes in unresponsive and then you're like "Hmm, i wonder if they've ever had a seizure before there's basically like a google function in their oh this happened last week yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then you see from last week's note like patient having seizure (laughs) oh great someone's way smarter than me i already figured this out yeah, let me exactly. just do what they did <laughs> um yeah and for the like people who come to the hospital a lot uh they i've seen people with more than a thousand notes in their chart so each note being probably like two at minimum two pages of paper they would have a two thousand page medical record like that's completely useless um and also really bad for the environment i would imagine yeah, yeah. so i think definitely electronic is the way to go now that everyone has sort of transitioned to it for the most part. And then um, about these new updates, we just had a very troublesome update, I would say. Well, we have strong opinions about the update that we just had for Epic. What are some of the new features that we have? Quote-unquote features. Well, they finally fixed the uh, very confusing cosine button, so it's now just a person with a check mark on them. Which uh, is way more clear what you need to do with it than the <laughs> cosine button. <laughs> um, and then what else do they do? They they did make it so that we can access handoffs on our phone, which is nice. But then they also changed all of our like free text entry things from just being neutral to bright pink. Yeah. Which kind of is annoying to the eye. They've also locked a lot of text um, from direct copying. Um, which is a kind of a pain, especially for MRI reports, because that it's not like I want to redictate everything that they wrote in detail in my yeah. own words. I could have just like quickly moved it over. Um, yeah. But I do see uh, some of the benefits to removing copying features within the EMR, <laughs> though I think it's been frustrating in some ways, too. Yeah. So I feel like we get used to one system and then somebody who's old and in administration says, hey, I have a better way to do this, even though I don't practice any clinical medicine. And then we just get stuck with their crappy ideas. <laughs> yeah, I really have no idea kind of what the thought process was going into. Love. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure overall, I think the medical record is moving in a positive direction, but it definitely has its ups and downs. It's a roller coaster ride. So, so Mac, what's going on in life outside the hospital right now? Oh, you know, not too much. Um, just kind of, Maddie is on very busy rotations right now, so we've kind of just 
uh, in survival mode right now as she's in the CCU and they're going into the ICU after this. Oh my um, gosh. Wait, she has back-to-back intensive care units? I think it's maybe broken up by a med B month, oh. but it's uh, a kind of uh, crazy streak. Um, but overall, uh, kind of the major project in the background is planning wedding stuff. <gasps> yes, I'm so excited for you guys. Yeah. All of our listeners, I was there the day that Mac and Maddie got engaged. <laughs> yeah. It was so lovely. Yeah, you were a major component of deceiving her. Into oh, like, stop. Yeah. You're too much, Mac. No, no, definitely. You and Ika's uh, honest nature, I think, was the only thing that kind of lured her into the false sense of confidence. <laughs> we did tell Maddie the night that she got engaged to Mac that we were hoping to have a picnic with her and Mac in the park and that we were bringing all the food in to not worry about it. And it was, in fact, a ruse by Mac to get her in the perfect sunset location in a beautiful park. I think what happened when you guys arrived there and she realized that we weren't there? Uh, She was not happy originally. (laughs) (laughs) She was not going for it. I don't think she... uh, uh, I I think it was until we got to like the picnic blanket that it finally dawned on her and then it kind of made all the sense. I stopped fluctuation that night, and it is so beautiful. Yeah. Mac and Maddie are perfect together. They're such a beautiful couple. It makes oh, me so you. happy. There's a lot of love in that relationship. <laughs> um, okay, so you guys are just surviving for the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, life in the hospital for me, right? Or life outside the hospital for me right now. Big transition time. Um, my mom is flying into town tomorrow uh to start helping take care of Bodhi because we have not yet gotten off the wait list for daycare in the hospital oh man <laughs> um so she's helping us out by watching Bodhi for another month until he starts daycare and unfortunately that means that uh we were saying goodbye to Ika's Ika's mom Gabriella who has been so kind to take care um help take care of Bodhi during the day while Ika and I are working this summer and we had such a fun summer with her. She takes really, really good care of Bodhi. And we had a lot of swimming pool adventures and um, a lot of long, fun walks um, and outdoor adventures, going to local um, wildlife preserves and stuff. So it was um, it was just a really, a really nice summer. And we're going to miss Gabrielle a lot. Um, but we're happy to see Gay coming out here. That's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I love my family so much, so I'm really happy to see my mom. Oh, Bodhi is an incredible addition to your family. I'm shocked that there aren't applications coming in all over for them trying to get him as their daycare (laughs) (laughs) attendee. Yeah, attendee. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right, well... With that said, I think that brings us to the end of our brainiest episode of uh, Dr. Doctor so far. So, Mac, thank you so much for being a guest. It was so fun hanging out with you. Thanks for having me, Griffin. Yeah, cool. All right. And thanks to all everyone listening. We want to say a special thanks to um, John Sid for providing music for this show. And just a reminder, if you have any questions, docdocpod at gmail.com. Um, and we'll look forward to reading those. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. 